0: The 19th century brought opportunity to many people who were food entrepreneurs in the South. Caterers were using local ingredients and influencing the palates of the southern diners. Robert Moss completes the story by including the often omitted African American chefs and caterers. It's on Tip of the Tongue. of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Robert Moss. He's a writer and independent scholar living in Charleston. He is the contributing barbecue editor for Southern Living. And he is the restaurant critic for the Post and Courier in Charleston. He has written a great new book called The Lost Southern Chefs, a history of commercial dining in the 19th century South. And it's really a great book all about things that you just know that you want to know, but you didn't know until you read them. The names of people, the way people ate, what they ate, all of that. So thanks for writing the book, Robert, and thanks for joining us today on Tip of the Time. Oh,
1: thank you, and thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to ask you how it was that you came to be interested in writing about food.
1: Food in general. Well, I, I, got, I got to it from the academic route. Everybody gets to it from a different, a different place. I got a PhD in English at the University of South Carolina, and um, as I was finishing up you know it was an american literature degree the 20th century american lit but i got more and more interested in social history as i was as i was finishing up my studies and got and always liked to eat and 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 enjoyed food um so i really got into food history and you know actually when i was actually right after i was finished up my dissertation i was looking for a new project to work on and i said well you know I, i love barbecue i'm really interested in in history of food so i'll go to the library here on campus and uh and check out a book on the history of barbecue, and there wasn't one, so I ended up doing a lot of research myself, and I took a lot of the same historical tools I learned as a you know, literary scholar and sort of started applying them to, to food history, and uh, turns out there was a ton about barbecue in the 19th century and earlier that no one had really written about, and so I ended up writing my first book, which is Barbecue, the History of American Institution, uh, which came out in 2000, and that sort of got me into food and into barbecue a little bit, and then um, when the blogs became big in the early part of the uh, 2000s, and uh, just for fun, I, I created a little food blog. It was actually right after I moved to Charleston, great dining city. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but it, uh, Charleston was on the, the edge of about to just burst into uh, sort of national stardom for its uh, culinary scene. Um, about the time I started writing about food, Sean Brock showed up from Nashville and took over <laughs> McCrady's. Most people in the South know, you know, he's probably our big celebrity chef from that period and went on to found Husk and sort of just blew up. And, you know, from there, I ended up writing about writing about food for the Charleston City Paper, which is the Alt Alt Weekly here in Charleston began reviewing restaurants for them. And that's what I got into. It. And that's why I had a ringside seat for the sort of rise of Charleston as a, as a culinary destination. Started writing for magazines. That's how I got tied up with Southern Living and, and wrote for a lot of other magazines. And sort of, sort of eased into it, more into the commercial writing side of it, coming from the history. But I've always, you know, on the background, continued researching culinary history and, and, and writing books about it. So this Lost Southern Chefs is the, the latest in sort of that, that series of digging in deep into the history of, of food and drink in the South.
0: Well so when you were getting your PhD in literature did you think you were going to go a straight academic route what was well your I didn't
1: know you know I, I enjoyed I was enjoying being in grad school I enjoying learning and the, doing the, the research and everything else and I didn't know if I wanted to go into teaching or not and what I ended up doing was when I was finished my classwork and was working my dissertation I got a job to you know pay the bills, which a little bit more than the teaching assistantship would. I got a job in the the, uh, software industry in the early dot-com boom days and uh, really liked it and really took off. So all along, I, I ended up making a career in the software world but always writing about food along alongside of it and just never ended up going back and teaching. So uh, yeah, I finished the dissertation, fortunately, but but never got a, a teaching job. Instead, I worked in software companies and uh, up until, until recently when I went out on my own and now do a lot of food writing, in addition to doing a lot of technology consulting uh, at the same time.
0: Yeah, well, that's a really interesting combination.
1: Yeah, so that definitely wasn't planned out. <laughs> it just sort of happened, but it did turn out pretty well.
0: It sounds like a right brain and left brain thing all the combined, you know? Yeah,
1: and it, it is good because it, it does give you an escape from, you know, each gives you escape from the other. From the if, other tired, yeah. you know, if I get tired of software, which it's easy to get tired of the, uh, especially the working in companies and all the, the, the dynamics there. So sometimes it's nice to bury yourself in the past for a couple of days and do research.
0: <laughs> I can imagine that. Well, so I'm really interested in this new book, The Lost Southern Chefs. And when you decided to write this book, what was that motivation? And when did that happen? When did you start to say, okay, we need to put this book together? or did you kind of fall into it?
1: I sort of fell into the book itself. And it actually, most of my books come together very slowly as I research and just find things, and, and I don't have an idea. And then finally, I, I come up with one, and then you get a book contract, and you try to knock it out. Um, this one went the other way around, which is the idea came together very quickly, and I, um, I got connected with a editor at University of Georgia Press who was interested in it, and helped group, you know, helped shape an idea with me, and then from there, it took years <laughs> it both to, write, to finish the writing. But more than anything, it just the, the editing and re- the academic you know, peer review process and all that took for a long time. And then COVID came and, and slowed things down. So it, 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 I probably wrote it in about a year and took three or more to get through the process of getting the, the first draft out the door. But to back up a little bit how I got into it, I actually got into it a little bit through the barbecue route. I was working on a, a revised edition of my barbecue history. And one of the things I was trying to do when I was revising that was go back to the 19th century and really fill in some gaps. Uh, In particular, trying to fill in the gaps of the names and the stories of the pitmasters, the people actually doing the cooking during the 19th century. I'd written a lot about the events, but I didn't have any names, and it was really hard to to turn up. I knew there were a lot of African-American men, primarily African-American men, doing the cooking at Southern barbecues, but I wanted to tell the stories of a few, and I I turned up two guys, one named um, Augustus Ferguson, the other Pickens Wells from Augusta, Georgia, and their story ended up in the revised edition of the of the book, the barbecue book. But an interesting thing, so Gus Wells was sort of the great barbecue man in um, Augusta, Georgia, and Pickens was his apprentice who succeeded him after Gus Ferguson get, got out of the barbecue business. But what was interesting is he got out of the barbecue business because, because he came became the cook at a restaurant in downtown Augusta. This is right around 1900, and then later ended up moving north, like a, a lot of African-American cooks did around that time, and ended up sort of, he was very famous in Georgia as a barbecue cook, it was allotted in the ads as a famous cook at this restaurant, but then ended up dying in obscurity up, up in, I think, New Jersey. And so that story got me into, okay, well, what's going on in the, in the restaurant scenes here in Augusta in the late 19th century? And that got me in digging all the way back into the rest of the 19th century. And turns out there's very, very little written about that period. Um, especially anything before the Civil War. There's just restaurant historians just have not touched upon it at all. And the people who were a part of that that just was was not written much about at all. My colleague, David Shields, who's a professor at the University of uh, South Carolina, he actually also is an English professor who got into writing about culinary history. So I'm not the the only one.
0: (laughs) I'm going to interrupt you for a second and, and say that David and Kevin Mitchell were part of a podcast I did a few weeks, ago, maybe two months ago about their new book.
1: Yeah, they just came out with a great book about sort of the, I call it the South Carolina icons, like the, all mm-hmm. the, the iconic dishes of South Carolina. Um, and so David's done a great job, uh, and in, in Kevin Mitchell as well, sort of digging into to that. He actually wrote a book called The Culinarians, which came out a few years before mine that it's essentially a capsule biographies of all these great culinary figures in, in all of the United States, not just the South, but he shared a lot of his research with me, including profiles of some of the figures who didn't make it into his book. And a lot of these are 19th century Southern cooks. So that gave me, he had done some of the legwork, if you will, They gave me a lot of names and, and places to start with. So what I did was I took those and then went back and then you know, David's book is more of a series of, of capsule biographies or profiles. I took more of a narrative approach to try to go back from the beginning and tell the story from, you know, around 1800 to 1900. That's your English, that's your
0: English literature back. Yep, for sure. I always (laughs) do like the
1: narrative. I like to know, you know, this led to that, this led to that, one thing leads (laughs) to another for sure. But to me, trying to piece that together helps me tell the story in, in a way and it helps me understand the trends and what was happening because if you read a lot of the previous scholarship on Restaurant history in the South in 19th century, it's, it's sort of sketchy, but they tend to sort of allied. you know, they'll take quotes from 1850 and put them next to quotes from 1820, put them next to quotes from 1870, and they'll like sort of act like this was just a single Southern food history, right. but there really isn't, they, they, especially if you're talking about restaurants, hotels, anything like that. 1820 and 1850 are night and day different. So much had changed in those, those three decades. And then when you flash forward another three decades to, you know, 1880 it's completely different as well. So you really have to look at you know, the, the, the evolution and how things changed over time.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I really love about your book, which I get frustrated by when I read someone who's trained as a historian like a PhD in Mm -hmm. history kind of person is that they they're in love with timelines and facts. Yeah. And so it's like in, in this day, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened and they don't put them together. They don't really set up a context that these things happened in or anything like that, because that's not what they're looking for. (laughs) They're just looking to give you these facts in some kind of an order And I actually would, would be more accepting of a mixed up order if I had a context. And that's what I love about what you do is you actually connect it together and talk about how this evolved into that and um, setting up the social situation that it's taking place in and all of that so that you, you have a, a more well you have a a scene that's set for you and this is happening within the scene it's not just happening yeah it's happening within a context and I, i find that much more satisfying to read about
1: yeah, and I think it's it's I like to, to see how the changes in society and changes in technology are, are. you know, I think food is a great way to sort of see that. And so it's one thing to, um, you know, find some newspaper articles and say, look, here we are in Louisville, Kentucky in 1850s, and there's a restaurant or saloon serving fresh oysters on the half shell. Well, okay, that's a weird thing to be doing in Kentucky. So how did that <laughs> that happen? Um, and there's a whole just series of events and that happened in the past, and you know, involving the oyster industry in Baltimore, involving railroads, involving steamships, involving the early express companies, including American Express, which before it was a financial. <laughs> credit card company uh, got started as an express shipper that would ship things uh, across multiple train lines because the railroads did not connect. And one of the things they would ship were cans of oysters from Baltimore all the way to Kentucky. And so just how that whole, you know, that whole economic network developed that allowed people to, you know, influence what people eat, could eat and when, uh, I just think it's fascinating. I think it's much more fascinating than just, you know, yeah, having a bunch of facts of this opened on this date and this guy moved here then or whatever. Why did they move there? Where did he come from? cetera.
0: Well, so speaking of that kind of research though, what kind of materials were you looking in?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a mix. You know, one of the challenges with this type of research compared to like writing a book about you know, political history or something like that is that you, you, know, there, you don't have these archives of papers where you can go find all of John Dabney, the great Richmond, Virginia restaurateur. There's no archive with all his papers in it where you can go recreate. Um, in fact, he was illiterate, so he didn't uh, have letters and all these things to, to save there's very, very few things. Uh, lots of newspaper research. And, and f- that's one of the things that, you know, in the past 10 years, 15 years, the rise of the digitized newspapers and online newspapers have made it a lot easier. Because if I have somebody's name, now I can go find very easily ads and, and little you know, obituaries and bios and then just little news stories, which you really couldn't do that in the era of microfilm you know, where you're yeah. just rolling through and through. So oh. a lot of newspaper and in, in, in that type of research, a lot of city directories and census records trying to track down where people were best and most detailed material actually came from legal uh, records because, you know, the restaurateurs' papers may not have been saved, but if they were involved in lawsuits <laughs> of, of on the property. And here in Charleston, Nat Fuller, who was the great uh, sort of mid-19th century restaurateur, was involved in a very interesting legal case involving the fact that he was enslaved before the war, and, uh, but somehow managed to become a famed restaurateur. Uh, the man who owned him, William Gatewood, they had an interesting relationship, and Gatewood Actually bought a building for Nat Fuller to become his restaurant, the Bachelor's Retreat. And Fuller, by all accounts, made all the payments. He was paying it, but he could not legally buy property. And so then, after Gatewood died during the Civil War, after the Civil War, when Nat Fuller was was now a free man, um, the Gatewood estate said, no, you don't own the building. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's yes. and so there's a really interesting lawsuit of where he's trying to get the building back and, and get ownership of the building. And so you learn an awful lot about Nat Fuller just through those documents, because that has a lot more information than you will you'll find just about anywhere else. So it's a combination of, of things, but it's really piecing together a lot of small scraps and trying to make a, a narrative out of it.
0: Well, it's interesting that, that you talk about the failure of archiving in those times because i really think that no matter how prominent a person a culinary person was in those days nobody would have thought that their papers were worth saving because the field wasn't one that was as respected i mean it was like do you save a pipe fitters papers do you save um you know street cleaners papers and whatever and i think that being a caterer or a restaurant owner or whatever was in that same. In that Yeah. Same and area. I'm
1: surprised I, I kept looking, but I never, there there had to have been ton of paper generated by a, a caterer or restaurant business. If you just think about all the ordering and all the bills they had to pay and, you know, right. and all that, ty- all that type of stuff. Just, just business records. Yeah. Yes. The, all the business records, but, yeah, like you said, that that wasn't something that anyone would ever think you would care about any more why would you keep the dry cleaners, you know, exactly. business papers, you know, throw those out after the, after they're died. But boy, I'd love to come across a, a trove of those somewhere. Uh,
0: <laughs> wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's really why we have at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum started our our library and archive so that those things can be kept. I think today, of course, being a chef is perhaps more respected than it has been in a long time since maybe you know 18th century france or something yes. mm-hmm. like that and there are many people who now go to culinary school and probably want to leave their papers with their alma mater or whatever but there are a lot of people who still don't go to culinary school and they've apprenticed or they just are natural cooks or whatever happens you know they 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 own a restaurant and we're trying to collect those papers so that in the future, it won't be so hard to, uh, to
1: do the research. <laughs> and that's a culinary historian, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, that's actually, there's nothing better than to just be able to spend a whole day in, in you know, really enmesh yourself deep into a single business. Mm-hmm. It's just a different way of doing research. I often say the way I do research these days with the digital art archives is I'm getting lots of little horizontal you know bits of the picture it's very different where i'm looking across lots of different restaurant tours looking across the city and everything that's being advertised that's very different than being able to go to an archive and just really dive deep into a single person or a single restaurant and really get deep into understanding that and well, you know you can't do it if the if, so, if someone hasn't saved the material oh,
0: that's right we have the papers of lewis osteen and oh, those are great yeah and um and uh, you're talking about legal documents and all of that. He has them, uh, just you know notes on menus as he's developing changes and different offerings on his menu and how people react to this and that. And all of it is just fascinating. <laughs>
1: yeah. And
0: you, you have to have it though.
1: Yeah, and that's what's interesting is that that's where my literary, scholarship background, you know, at the University of South Carolina, they have a huge literary archive. So lots of like huge F. Scott Fitzgerald archive, huge James Mm -hmm. Dickey archive, uh, Joseph Heller archive. So I spent a lot of my grad school years, you know, archiving and cataloging and then doing research in in those archives. And so I really got into the fact, you know, these people who saved every scrap of anything that Fitzgerald (laughs) did. And then uh, Matthew J. Bruckley was the professor there who collected it all and donated it to the library. So the, the people who collect it and save it. And it's just yeah. There's just that doesn't exist yet for the, the restaurant world. But it sounds like uh, you guys are, are really building out a lot of it. So maybe 10, 20 years from now, there'll be a lot different. I think there's someone's going to write a really good history of mentioned Lewis Osteen, also a Kirk's Corner. And, you know, that whole period is so I call it the New Southern uh, Revival. Very interesting or New Southern Movement. Very interesting things happening. And no one's really quite written the full history of it yet. So that's a book out there for somebody soon.
0: Right. And all of that stuff that happened before everything was documented digitally, or not even digitally, just on film, yeah. even. And just this is a true aside, but one of the things that I, one of the people I'm interested in is Lena Richard. And she was on television in New Orleans. And yet, She died before the kinescope was developed. So even though you can go to the TV sections of the newspaper and see stills of her in the process of um, cooking, there's no kinescope of her. Oh, wow. And so I went. I actually went to the station, and I said, "You've got to have some. You just have to." And they kept saying, "No, it wasn't invented yet. I mean, it just doesn't exist." And um, I, I, I mean, I, what can I do? I can't make it exist. But it was, it was so disappointing that you couldn't find a film of her of some sort, you know. And the kinescope is just a, a movie camera in front of the television filming the television screen because that's the way they did did it it. because television was like radio it just went out in the airwaves Mm -hmm. and there was no documentation of it and and that was the way you caught the radio you you had a tape recorder and so the same thing happened with a a movie camera in front of the television (laughs) and nobody had thought of doing it yet so there was it just didn't happen so you can't even have this kind of grainy uh yeah. not even yet. like
1: a like a two-minute clip or something yes, you know, would, yes, be, you, would be great yeah,
0: you can't have it but we do i mean there are stills of her yeah. there are people were taking photographs for the paper and just to document that she was there but it's just not the same hmm.
1: no it certainly isn't but it is it, frustrating because especially these lost southern chefs as i call them i'm I know they're out there. I know they had very rich, very interesting lives, but there's very little information. It's really frustrating. It's like, why didn't somebody just write a profile or you know, just <laughs> capture something from it, please? <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> Goodness. So, one of the things I, I kind of want to talk about a little bit is Ned Fuller. How did that whole, his whole, development of a a belief about that special dinner and everything how how did all of that happen
1: yeah it's curious I opened the book with the Nat Fuller feast in here in Charleston and I'm gonna look up the date real quick because I'll make make sure I go yes 2015 which um David Shields you mentioned David Shields and Kevin Mitchell they collaborated on that dinner I think may have been the first time they really worked together I ended up writing books and stuff uh later about this great Charleston uh Restaurant and caterer named, named Nat Fuller, who I talked about a little bit, little bit already, um, David came across a, a reference in a letter to a feast that was staged by Nat, Nat Fuller at his restaurant in Charleston in the closing days of the Civil War, after the Union occupation, and it's really just a one-line letter you know, for the letter that's uh, written by a, a white Charlestonian lady saying something about you know, the the blacks and whites sat in inequality I won't get the quote exactly right, but they sat in equality and sang and drank toast to Lincoln. So it sounded like there was a integrated dinner at, at the end after the Union troops had occupied Charleston, where whites and blacks sat down and, and you know had a big feast together and toasted Lincoln and emancipation and, and freedom. And so, which is a remarkable find, and you know to the Dr. Shields did lots of research into Nat Fuller's life and really uncovered a lot. You know, there have been a few things written about him in the past and a few histories, but not, not any, anything in detail. And they decided to stage this commemorative dinner. Um, and in, you know, it, this was it was the the feast would have taken place in 1865. Didn't know the exact date, the letter didn't say, but it would have been in probably March, April 1865. So they did it in April. 2015, sort of the 50th. 150th, yeah. Yeah, uh, 150th anniversary 150th. of it. Yep, yeah. um, and invited a lot. I was invited as one well of the guests, uh, and lots of other people were. Isn't this was really a, a, a cross section of people who would be interested in food and history and sort of civil rights and you know community community activism. Really getting a bunch of people together. It was a great, great feast and a great meal. And what they tried to do was recreate Nat Fuller's repertoire. From piecing together from all these menus, they didn't know anything much about the actual feast. Um, well, it turns out that dinner never really happened in in 1865. So, um, yeah, and, and that 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 dinner got picked up and, and got a lot of uh, a lot of press. Uh, you know, because it was a very interesting thing, and it, it really got me interested as well this is when I was starting to engage with David and learning a lot about these these figures but a professor a history professor named Ethan Keitel sort of got was intrigued by it as well and dug into it and discovered the original of the letter and and it turns out that uh Mrs. Porche who wrote it actually wasn't in Charleston at the time she was writing from uh she she and her family had fled to Greenville as the Union troops were approaching so she was writing based upon just something she had read in the newspaper and you know so it was a very that it there likely never was that actual dinner there was a similar dinner that um that fuller staged uh on but there was staged by the union troops and some some northern newspaper men so all all, all white guests served uh-huh. in the african-american man's uh, restaurant but it was not certainly not a an integrated celebratory feast and um so that, that that's an interesting twist i don't know that it, it in my mind it doesn't really invalidate anything about Nat Fuller, because his story is really fan, fantastic. And, and Dr. Shields did a ton of work to uncover and piece together his life. We just, uh, I think maybe what I, I would call a well intentioned mistake and uh, assumption in, in assuming it, but it did trigger like a recreation of Nat Fuller's career. It, it, it rekindled um, historians like myself to look into that period. And it really got me saying, well, what, wow, this guy really was the leading caterer of Charleston from 1850 to you know until till he died in 1866, I think. And he was an enslaved man for, for almost all but the last last year of that. And how did that happen? And it turns out he wasn't the only one. That story took place in many different cities in the South, which I write about in the book. And so that's part of the impetus was to go back and say, okay, wait a second. No one's ever written about this stuff. Everybody sort of assumes there there was no restaurants at all, or if there were, they're just terrible in the South, you know, back before the, the Civil War it turns out it's not at all all true. And and there's many, many fascinating stories like Nat Nat Fuller's uh, in the past. Right.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that we'll continue to be uncovering more and more information. And it would be lovely if people who have letters or journals where things are mentioned would realize that what they have is not just something that's a family treasure because it's my aunt so-and-so's letters or whatever, but it's something that really can shed light on, on our history and that people might start donating those things. And then also having archives recognize that this random person's letters might actually be useful. I think that's also um, an issue. I know that as I've spoken to people who are curators of menu collections at various archives and libraries, they often are frustrated by the fact that they're kind of idiosyncratic collections that are donated by all these people who might this person collects all the menus where I celebrated my anniversaries, and this person collects all the menus during my, my grand tour in Europe, and you know they're, they're not cohesive in any way. They're just the random collections of different people, and you don't want them to be lost, but the, no one's going to use that collection because they say, oh... That is so-and-so. I mean, it it would be great if Theodore Roosevelt collected the menus of all the places where he ate. And then you could, in doing your research about Theodore Roosevelt, learn more about his, his proclivities and what kinds of restaurants he ate at and all of that kind of thing. But most of the people who have these collections and donate them are not that famous. And so... You're not going to probably be researching them. You just need the data that's in the menus. But because it's just they have one this year and one that year, and you know, whatever, um, it's really hard. And, and we've often talked about trying to create a national database of menus so that you can more systematically search for, oh, what are about. How much seafood was eaten or you were talking about oysters where was where were oysters eaten and when and all of that in a way that we really almost can't do right now because you go to this library or that library and you are limited by what their resources are
1: yeah and i certainly you know menus were very valuable for me in doing this book and, and trying because i was trying to piece together who is eating what, when, and where in, mm-hmm. in the South. Um, one of the challenges is, a, a, you know, a great many of the menus that survive are from big banquets, um, mm-hmm. which makes sense. You had a huge celebratory banquet. That's an important event. We're going to save the menu. We save all the invitations, all the other things, right. mm-hmm. speeches that were given at the events. And sometimes the speeches were very important. Sometimes they were dry and dull, but to <laughs> me, and but I love those menus are great. And they really map out what a, big celebratory banquet would look like and I have lots of them in the in the uh, book they're huge (laughs) it's just like you can imagine these people were leaving leaving groaning after course after (laughs) course after course but what's not as common are just sort of the ordinary everyday menus from from restaurants and that's a little bit harder to find I was able to get sometimes some they would publish them in the newspaper and ads but oftentimes it wouldn't be a full menu it'd just be like we just got a fresh shipment of green turtle uh, green turtle soup so you can sort of and also featuring whatever you know uh, quite wild ducks and uh, you know and uh, you know whatever might be fresh and but you wouldn't really get a sense of the whole menu of what someone can eat so I would love it if there was actually a lot broader collection and I'd be happy to you know, dig through them and sort them and all that kind of stuff. But the hardest part is if they, no one's bothered to keep them. You can't, you, know, you can't do the work.
0: No, no, exactly. Or if you can't find it, even though somebody yeah. did keep it. Yes, that's always really, really difficult. So, I I want to thank you so much uh, for doing this. This is a really a terrific book, and I think it it lends a lot of of color to life in the 19th century, because I don't really think that it's something that most historians talk about. And it does give you another dimension about what people were doing and what their expectations were and all of that.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, this is commercial dining. So it's public dining and it's, it's restaurants, but it's also hotels, saloons, caterers who are catering big events. So anywhere where people were cooking for money, um, it's, we, there's been a great, the last 20 years, there's been a great a sort of flourishing of, of food historians writing about Southern food um, in a way that, taking it serious in a way that people did not beforehand, recognizing the contributions of African-Americans, sort of rethinking and re-envisioning what, what it was like to eat in the South in the 19th century. But the vast majority of that is focused not in the cities, but on plantations, farms, you know, the individual home kitchens, which is natural because in the 19th century you know 90 percent of the South was was rural mm-hmm. but not very people lived in the cities but the cities were very important and they really had a huge influence on on the south and what was happening and that's where a lot of interesting dining stuff was going on. I felt that piece of the story just hadn't been told so I was trying to fill in that gap and uh, so it's, it's been great to do it and it, you know it doesn't it doesn't contradict all those other writers it just adds mm-hmm. to the story because
0: right.
1: you know there's 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 a lot going on in the south in the 19th century.
0: Absolutely. And it is a reminder. Oh, dear. (laughs) It is a reminder that we think of the South as rural and it it is multidimensional. And it also, I think, in your book, you cover the South. So that you're talking about coastal areas as well as non-coastal areas. And I think that makes a big difference in terms of what people were eating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we tend to think about the South as a monolith, which is Mm -hmm. pretty much, you know, is reflecting backwards due to the civil war, due to the, to the 20th centuries and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. But you know, throughout the 19th century, yeah, the South is very much a, you know, it's very different you know, from one place to, to another. You know, you, you, Washington DC is not like uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, which is not like uh, you know, somewhere in, in a cotton plant plantation in, in Alabama. So it's a very different and very highly regionalized area um, straight through the 19th century, even, even well into the 20th century, that we tend to lump it all together and, and call it the South.
0: Right, exactly. And so anyway, I, I really um, think you've, you've added a lot to the resources available to people who want to learn more. Also written a readable and interesting book, which sometimes those are not always compatible
1: (laughs) compatible ideas. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's actually is a goal. I do want it to be very readable and not just some dry academic, you know, there are footnotes, but I try to, you know, make the material between the footnotes be very interesting.
0: (laughs) So thanks a whole lot for being with us.
1: Yes. Well, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.